May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So last week I was on Facebook, which happens a lot, and um, a colleague, a fellow Franciscan from America had posted a question, so he'd taken a line out of uh, one of the collects from our daily obedience, which says, give your labourers sufficient success on earth, and he wondered what sufficient success on earth would look like, Uh, and there were a number of postings which were interesting. But, um, and none of them kind of were even on my list of what might be a possible answer. So I wondered what we thought sufficient success on earth might look like. So I invite you to turn to your neighbour, which is a very unadipoc thing to do, and to talk about what is sufficient success on earth. Got about a minute, not long. What is sufficient success on earth? on earth look like? Um, we, we decided to really aim to do it well. Okay. Often makes you miserable. So not wealth? But meeting your needs. Meeting your needs. Well, okay. <laughs> okay well, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just asking the question. Trevor? Yeah, I've gone back to wealth. The richness that we have on this earth. We've got a um, wonderful opportunity for family life. We've got wonderful Yep. Okay. So when when you are able to do those things, I think we're a lot of us are losing those skills. Yep. Yeah. Don't look at my vegetable garden. We need to love. Love. Love and service. Love and service. Any other answers? So uh, yesterday the vestry had a planning day and I guess underneath all of our planning is this question about what does a successful church look like? We didn't actually talk about that, but that was implicit in everything that we were talking about. What do you think a successful church looks like, given what you think, what you've just said about successful, sufficient success on earth? How does that translate to a church? Trevor? I would think outreach. 
Yeah. Not necessarily me, but we can find a church in the middle of the paddock as long as it's got outreach to people. So what does outreach look like? Um, exactly what Jesus was doing, talking to people, helping people. Okay. Yep. What other things? Any other things? I do think people in the church projecting the love of God out with me in yep. our daily lives, which is often a lot easier said than done. Right. A lot easier said. So living out the love of God. Yeah. Yep. So also on Facebook. Uh, I read uh, a while ago. Well, it's a great source of information. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. It can also be an enormous time waster. But, um, so it's no longer on my home screen when I open up my browser, so I have to go hunting for it. But, um, and it's no longer on the front of my phone either. You have to go hunting for it on my phone. But uh, there was a, a story about a pastor in America who uh, planted a church, and it was a, a very successful church. So it had lots of people coming. Um, they ran great children's ministry. They ran great youth ministry, which is always something we kind of circle around when we have our vestry planning days. How can we do those kind of things? Uh, people were inspired by the worship. The numbers grew. The finances were in great shape. They were able to employ more staff. But the pastor became increasingly unhappy about what was happening. He wasn't entirely sure that what they were doing was success. Like on the face of it, it looked like success. But he wasn't sure that it was success. And he began to question what they were doing. So why was he questioning it? Well, today we had the story of Mark. And in many ways, it would seem that that story from Mark, and it's right again right at the beginning, and it's a reasonably important story because it follows on from last week's story where on Jesus healed on the Sabbath and then he asked the questions of the Pharisees, is it lawful to, to uh, preserve life, to save life, or... Um, what was the other alternative? Something about death on the, on the Sabbath. And they were silent, so he healed the man, and they went out and plotted with the Herodians on how to kill him. So he gave them two alternatives. They chose the second one. And then Jesus goes home, and we have the story. So the, on the face of it, Jesus is doing amazing things, isn't he? He's healing people. people are, lots of people are coming to hear him. Um, and, uh, and he's also casting out demons. And like we just kind of often stop at that level. That's, that's what it looks like. And we kind of fail to see what's happening underneath all of that. And what's happening underneath all of that is not only is Jesus healing people, but he is, when he heals them, he restores them to their communities and these families. So this has relationship implications and it also has community implications and it has financial implications because those people who were um, possessed or so sick they were being brought to Jesus were not taking part in the economic life of the community. They couldn't. They couldn't do whatever it is they used to be able to do. So when Jesus heals them, he restores them. Although, depending on how long they've been sick or possessed, that may have actually been an extra burden because now 
Um, they can do stuff, but they may not have actually been trained to do anything. So what can they do? So there's all sorts of questions around that. Now one of the extraordinary things about Jesus was he wasn't the only person wandering around Israel at the time or Galilee healing. There were other itinerant healers and exorcists, but they charged. So they would go to you, kind of like doctors today, and if you could afford it, you could get the help that they offered. But Jesus offered that to anyone, to anyone who needed it. Well, not anyone, because he would leave places, even though there were still queues of people there and he'd go off to the next place. But it was free of charge, and it was, and it was to anyone. So one of the things that gets Jesus into trouble is he keeps offering that to all the wrong people. So he tells stories where Samaritans are the heroes of the story. Well, Samaritans are not the heroes of anyone's story. And the list of possible heroes and stories, Samaritans are in the other list of possible people who are the enemies. They're not never to be heroes. Ever. But he has them as heroes. And he goes into their villages. And they're not always sure what to do with that because, well, Jews and Samaritans don't like each other. They really don't like each other. And a kind of Middle Eastern deep hate don't like each other. The kind of thing that we as New Zealanders struggle to get our heads around because we just don't get that level of animosity. And he eats with the, with the sinners and the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes and all the people who are supposed to be on the outside. He eats with them, which means he honours and he blesses them. And he offers healing to them. All the people that the religious leadership say are outside of the love of God. God has no interest in these people. They have turned their backs on God. God, God has punished them with these things. And Jesus keeps offering all these things to these people. That's why the Pharisees and the Herodians are really unhappy because all of this has been offered to the wrong people and it's starting to have political implications. Because Jesus is also talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is very messianic and Jews have very clear ideas what that means. And it means Romans go home. We don't need you anymore. Thank you very much but please take your allegiance and rock on off back to Italy, where you belong. And Romans aren't you know, super happy about that kind of thinking. So they tend to be a little bit aggressive when that kind of thinking comes about. So Pilate, one of Pilate's great stories is there was a messianic revolt and the legions were sent in and they just massacred everyone who was involved in a hill in Samaria. So that's the kind of thing that the Romans dealt with. And when that revolt really does take place 40 years later, like it's a, it's a horrific event in the life of Judaism. Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the last stand at Masada, rather than being taken by the Romans, they all suicided, they killed each other, and there was one person, because it's against the law to kill yourself so they killed each other and there was one person left on Masada when the Romans eventually finished their ramp and got in to this great fortress 
So hundreds of thousands were deported as slaves. The great diaspora was, the Jews were just banished from the Holy Land. So that's how Rome dealt with all of that. So this is all happening in this story. So what kind of response then was Jesus' successful ministry evoking from people? Well, yes, there were people flocking. But John is very clear that those, and John is very clear that Jesus was very sceptical about people who came just for the miracles. And in John's Gospel, it's those people, those crowds who flock, who leave him when he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The teaching gets too hard. When the pressure starts to ramp up, those are the people that flee. In this story, we have the leadership starting to try to publicly shame him. They're trying to push him to the edge. So they've come to say he is possessed himself. He's only able to cast out these demons because he is demon-possessed. And his family, well, they think he's out of his mind. So they've come to take him home before he piles more shame on the family. So what does success look like for Jesus? Well, the marks of success for him were that actually people started to get angry with him. The leadership were taking note and he was starting to be accused of being demon-possessed and his family was starting to take note and wanted to drag him away, lock him up, where he couldn't bring any more shame on them. The ultimate marks of success for Jesus were in fact betrayal and death. All the Gospels lead not to a great ending to the story, but to crucifixion. The only possible success in the story was his death. So yes, we can stop with the, the nice, warm, fuzzy things, Jesus healing, people coming to see that's what church is about. But if we dig deeper and look harder at what the marks of success were, they become a lot less comfortable. Which takes us back to the pastor in America. So he was teaching, I don't know if you've listened to people like Joyce Rupp, I listened to a couple of her things when I was at Parachute a few years ago, and I was surprised because I'd never listened to her, and she's world famous, a big, you know, flies around in her own jets, those kind of things, well I don't know if she does, but lots of the others do. Uh, and her teaching was kind of nice life lessons um, with a little bit of Jesus layered across the top. And I was kind of, I kept waiting for the weighty Christian teaching, but it was just lots of good stories, nice life lessons. Like she could be a good life coach, really. And there was a kind of thin veneer of quotes from the Bible to make this sound like it was Christian. And there was nothing wrong with what she taught. But it just wasn't particularly Christian. And I think that's what this guy kind of realised. That yes, his message was relevant. You know, in the church we love to be relevant. We're always talking about how we can be relevant. He was very relevant. And lots of people were coming to him. Until he changed his preaching. So actually we're supposed to have had some pictures. There we go. There was the question. There's the thing about, and then the last one. There we go. So 
So Ignatius of, uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, he's the uh, founder of the Jesuits. So um, he started to talk about this kind of stuff. He started to talk about Jesus amongst the outcasts. He started to talk about things like, what does it mean to love our neighbour? In America, that's a hard thing. When Trump kind of brought in his uh, new anti-Muslim, like he pretended it wasn't, but anti-Muslim regulations and kind of tightened up on immigration and anti-Hispanic, lots of people said, well, he has to do that because, you know, we have a responsibility to protect our neighbours. These were mostly Christians who were saying that. And the question is, well, who would Jesus say is your neighbour? Who is your neighbour? I mean, then he told a story about the Good Samaritan, where the person who acted as a neighbour was a hated and despised Samaritan. So in that story, in that context, it would have been a Muslim or a Mexican was the one who was acting as a neighbour. They just couldn't get it. So when this guy started talking about things like that, well, he felt like at last his church was successful, but the numbers plummeted. The finances went through the toilet. The youth ministry and the children's ministry started to struggle. All the marks that had once been, I have a great successful church, just started to melt away. And he finished the article by saying, I don't know if our church will survive. But I do know that while we're here, we are being successful because we are living out God's love. For those who are most despised in our communities, for those who are on the edge, we are the ones living that out. It wasn't a popular message. But then, neither was Jesus' message that popular in the end. They killed him for what he was doing. So, in what ways are we a successful church? How are we successful? I invite you to turn around and talk to your neighbours again. How are we a successful church? What are the marks of success for us?